weather may be warming up, but the winter storm just weeks ago won't be easily forgotten, especially by Texans who suffered through the cold or paid up to fix damage and replace spoiled food. In just days, we learned how unprepared our state was for days of record low temperatures and the toll they took on their power grid. The costs are tallying up and could be passed on in some ways to taxpayers. But how else was the economy impacted? And is it fair to compare this to past disasters? The timing of events just could not have possibly been worse. These sort of black swan events that are happening with sort of disconcerting regularity, I, I think need to be factored in more so than perhaps we have. We saw very clearly in this spell uh, just how costly that big negative outcome was. I'm Erica Hugo, and this is Commerce Street, a business podcast from Ken's Five. In this episode, we're talking with two local professors who've researched and followed energy economics about potential impacts to our economy in the short and long term. We start with Dr. Taylor Collins, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of the Incarnate Word. We asked about the state of the energy industry in Texas and how we got here. talked about how even just not having power affected businesses, especially small businesses here in San Antonio. So I guess, let's say looking at the power industry itself, just that particular industry, obviously huge impact from a, you know, perspective of attention and policy, but economically, what impact are we going to see on the power industry for years to come? Um, tough to say, because a lot of the impact we're going to see is going to be a result of uh, what regulatory changes come out of this. Um, if there's no policy change, um, the impacts we see might honestly be relatively small. Maybe we see firms being a little bit more risk averse. Uh, maybe we see a little bit more uh, storage facilities popping up in order to prepare for stuff like this. Uh, but honestly, if that sort of stuff isn't mandated, um, there's, a, there's a very strong economic incentive for energy producers to keep doing what they're doing now. And so just to give you an example on that, we hear a lot of talk about winterizing uh, equipment for these energy firms, right? And you might hear the response that, well, now that we've seen that this sort of storm is possible, firms are going to have an incentive to winterize themselves. They don't need to be regulated into doing this. Uh, the problem with that sort of argument is that winterizing a single well is going to cost $100,000, uh, and we have 250,000 wells in Texas. So to think that um, we're just going to choose to embrace a 25 billion cost, obviously it won't be that much because some of them are already winterized and ready. But I mean, we're not talking about a small sum of numbers here uh, in, order, in terms of getting this infrastructure prepared for the next big storm. And if the next big storm has only a 1% chance happening each year, I mean, firms tend to think on five, six, seven year timelines, 5% chance we see something like this again in the next five, six, seven years, it's probably not in the firm's best interest to go ahead and make these investments on their own. So if we want to be prepared for the next storm, it's going to probably take some sort of regulatory oversight. Um, if that does come, it likely has a cost all the way filtering down to consumers. Because again, $100,000 per well, we're talking about a lot of wells, that's going to add a cost level for producers. And some of that's going to spill over to consumers. Um, and that's kind of the trade-off we're thinking about is, you know, low probability of a catastrophic outcome versus a certainty of higher utility bills each month. Uh, which of those do we want to go with? Um, I think we saw very clearly in this spell 
just how costly that big negative outcome was. Um, because of that, I wouldn't, we're certainly going to see more calls for regulation. I don't know how far those are actually going to go. For another perspective, we reached out to Dr. Thomas Tunstall, the Senior Research Director for the UTSA Institute for Economic Development. When you talk about regulation and deregulation in Texas, just from a historical perspective and in context of what you've seen here over the years, obviously there's been a general resistance a lot of the time to adding too much regulation. Does this seem like the kind of event that really is once in a decade situation that could shift the viewpoint on this? Or, I mean, not, not necessarily asking you for a political opinion, but just historically, has there been anything else that has really made lawmakers more conducive to strengthen regulation? Well, it's certainly the severity of this storm, the fact that uh, a lot of the state was, was without power for, you know, to greater and lesser degrees for, for a week. Uh, I mean, that, it's one thing if the power goes out for a few hours at night or, or even part of a day, but, but the length of time that uh, many Texans were without power, I think is going to cause, you'd mentioned supply chains. Uh, I think a lot of that is already in need of rethinking. We've seen the impact we saw with Hurricane Harvey, the impact on supply chains, a different impact for COVID-19, but still affecting supply chains in terms of the things that uh, were in short supply. And now with uh, you know the supply chains associated with uh, uh, electricity, and and some of that may have to do with deregulation in that private companies are they're driven typically by quarterly earnings calls, and they're trying to lower costs and and minimize inventories and have everything sort of just arrive just in time as opposed to having buffer stocks and and backup systems and things like that. And so if, if those uh, if it, it is determined that, that some of those forces of competition that go along with deregulation actually made this outage more likely. Uh, and, and you've already heard, you know, uh, Rick Perry, uh, Governor Abbott, uh, lots of folks who are typically very, very in favor of deregulation uh, starting to ask that question. Is this perhaps, is this industry important enough to, to consider uh, a little more oversight than it currently has? Texas isn't used to frigid temperatures but we know hurricanes. We asked both of our guests to weigh in on whether that's a fair comparison. The answer, yes in some ways, no in others. Whenever you're talking about something like cold enough weather to actually shut down businesses, pipes freezing, electricity outages, things like that, you definitely get some parallels to hurricanes where you know, you've know you got flood damage, you've got people who just can't get out to their place of business. Um, and anytime you've got that sort of framework, I mean, you've got the standard hits to retail, standard hits to restaurant, uh, tourism, anything like that that's real human interactive uh, base uh, is going to take a hit for sure. Um, and we saw that from the week of the storm uh, without question, as you know, even grocery stores were having to shut down simply because they weren't able to power. Um, not a great time for that coming off the back end of the pandemic, obviously, where restaurants are pretty desperate to get back open and get people in their stores. Um, so. I mean, for a lot of these restaurants, it's going to end up being, you know, one week worth of cost and doesn't sound like a big deal. But again, one week of cost when you're coming off of a year where you've been at 20 percent capacity, uh, it could be the difference for a couple of folks needing to shut down versus staying open. I mean, the impact of Hurricane Harvey was estimated to be somewhere in the vicinity of $125 billion. And, and it's possible that Winter Storm Uri will uh, approach that level. One important distinction to make is that typically hurricanes, 
Hurricane Harvey even, it was relatively localized. I mean, along the coast, for example, it, it did, you know, take on a pretty large section of the coast, but the winter storm affected virtually the entire state. So that's a huge difference in and of itself. Hurricane Harvey is the big one that people keep mentioning, but just from a historical perspective here in Texas, how often is it that we have some kind of disaster-driven impact on the economy like this? And I know that you mentioned the stay-at-home orders were a good example too. What are other big events that cause this kind of shock to the system? Well, I mean, it could be any number of things. It could be natural disasters, which can take a variety of forms of, as we've seen. Uh, they can also be man-made. I mean, theoretically, we, we, we could see some uh, terrorist-related type of activity as well. So they can come in any number of forms. Um, the, the, the hard part is you never know what the next one's going to be or quite what it will look like. I don't think anybody would have predicted the COVID-19 impact. And even when we did see it, most of us uh, uh, that went into the work at home or stay at home mode thought it would be for a couple of weeks, not over a year. Um, and and then the, the winter storm, I mean, Nobody really saw that coming, the severity. I mean, I guess several days out, a week out, we, we knew about the severity of it. Ironically, ERCOT indicated that uh, they knew and they were prepared. Uh, clearly, they weren't. And that's why we're seeing a lot of uh, personnel changes over at that organization. The supply chain was already strained thanks to the pandemic, presenting challenges for manufacturers. For some, the storm was more of an added hiccup. For others, it had more significant impacts. I think the industry that's getting hit the hardest right now uh, would be uh, semiconductors and anyone who uses it. So um, idea being, if you're talking about producing um, a steel pipe, right, there can be variation from one steel pipe to the next. One of them has a little scratch. They've got smudge, some dust. If you have to shut down a steel pipe plant and bring it back online, you can do that pretty quick. We're talking about semiconductors. You need a very highly uh, clean, uh, specialized standard manufacturing plant in order to produce these very fine technical pieces of equipment. Uh, and so we're seeing uh, a lot of plants in Austin in particular. Uh, Samsung's there. NXP is there. Um, I think Infineon has one there. Uh, all of them had to shut down because of power demand issues through the week of the storm. Uh, and because of that, I mean, it takes them weeks at a time to get back online get everything cleaned out and get it ready to produce those uh, goods. Um, and so the semiconductors themselves are obviously an issue and then anything that will use them will be an issue as well. So things like automobiles, uh, things like laptops, uh, things like consumer electronics. Uh, there's already a global semiconductor shortage coming out of the pandemic. It's been going on for a long time. So adding on top of this, uh, the shutdowns we're seeing in these Austin plants, I think that's one area where uh, manufacturing is going to struggle, um, particularly since they've had such a rough COVID recently. Uh, but again, I do think in general, most manufacturing is in okay shape. Uh, I think when we, when we talk about this storm in particular, we need to distinguish micro level impacts versus macro level impacts. The macro is the big picture aggregating everything together. And at that level, I think things are looking pretty good overall. When talking about the supply chain, it may sound easy to say, just have backup supplies ready to go, right? It's not that simple. And in some cases, some companies don't feel it's typically cost effective. When you talk about the supply chain, 
even the president on a national level has been talking recently about what measures could be taken to address issues in supply chain disruption, because we've seen a few of these problems, as you mentioned, over the past couple of years. When you talk about doing that, is it mostly just about diversifying geographically where resources come from, or are there other pieces to that? Well, okay, that's one aspect of it, you know, diversifying geographically. Another is uh, buffer stocks. Uh, uh, an interesting example is ventilators, which were in short supply. Private industry has very little incentive to keep large number of numbers of those on hand if they're going to be sitting idle. They're very expensive to, to just keep keep in your inventory if you're not going to use them. And so that's probably suggests a role for government at, at, at some level. But you know, in addition, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, supply chains in general have become much more tenuous. They're really uh, so fine tuned that that any disruption. Can, can cause some, some heartburn, as we've seen. And I, I think that supply chain theory, which has traditionally focused almost exclusively on cost and efficiency, will now be looking at, at sort of a broader picture of, of you know, reliability and, and resilience. Um, so there, there are actually several things that can be done and, 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 and I think will be done as, as the issue gets further analyzed. When you talk about that fine tuning, just anecdotally, I'd heard from one manufacturer that makes like joint compounds and products like that, that because of the petrochemical plants, they had only been getting like week of type shipments because it's cheaper for the companies, right? I mean, there there's an economic reason behind that. Is that pretty commonplace? Yeah, I mean, that's that. There are elements. Uh, there's more to it than that, but that that is key. Uh, holding inventory uh, ties up capital. It risks uh, becoming obsolete. It risks damage. So, uh, you know, manufacturing techniques and a lot of supply chain basics right now don't want a piece of inventory uh, in to arrive uh, until real, almost literally the nanosecond before it's needed. And and so any and and that works fine as long as everything's as long as a, you know uh, logistics uh, is is in order that that uh, you know uh, transportation networks are flowing. Uh, but if those get disrupted, then suddenly that 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 sort of super fine tuning uh, basically brings things to a virtual halt. But is there anything else that you think is really important for people to know or to understand about this situation? I, I can say one more thing about long term consequences. Yeah. Something that um, is more speculative than uh, necessarily going to happen, but something we want to watch out for in the back end of this, uh, especially Texas being a large energy producer and in particular large energy exporter to Mexico. I think it's worth paying attention to the political discussions around uh, Mexico's energy independence. Uh, that's been a talking point for President Obrador for a long time. Uh, and he's already been using the storm to kind of um, re-emphasize that particular message that Mexico needs to increase their own natural gas production. The idea is, I mean, Mexico's getting some like, 60% or so of their electricity from natural gas. They're importing most of that natural gas from Texas. Um, they lost one quarter of their imports during the storm. I mean, they had a, a big, big cut down since just affect Texas. A couple million households in Mexico went offline uh, because of the Texas oil, uh, I'm sorry, natural gas production issues. Um, for a long time, the Mexico side of the Eagleford Shale has been a little underdeveloped compared to the Texas side. Um, Obrador has been pushing for Mexican energy independence and increasing that production. I wouldn't be surprised if he uses this event to re-emphasize the need to do that. Now, that can be a mixed bag. Um, when we talk about energy, um, U.S. is importing a lot of raw energy products from Mexico and then exporting a lot of refined products. So maybe if they're increasing their natural gas production, that allows us to increase our refining capabilities 
there's a possible upside to it. Uh, but it's also a potential big customer loss if Mexico starts fully self-supplying their own natural gas for this industry. Uh, potentially something that um, could just add to the long-term consequences to the uh, energy side of things. So it's a real um, uh, challenge for public policy going forward. I think that uh, you know these these sort of black swan events that are happening with uh, uh, sort of disconcerting regularity, I, I think, need to be factored in more so than 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 perhaps we have. Uh, you know, we're going to get another hurricane. Um, I don't know, and that's the you know, that's the thing you can say for certain. What you really can't say for certain is what's going to be the next COVID or the next ice storm Yuri or, or whatever. I mean, EMP strike, electromagnetic pulsar. I mean, you know, there are just, uh, unfortunately, a lot of possibilities. Uh, it's hard to know which one might occur, but I think supply chains in general are going to, uh, both those publicly and privately held, are going to be examined for resilience and, 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 and that will factor in a lot more than, than has been the case over certainly the last couple of decades, if not, if not longer. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Commerce Street, a business podcast from Ken's Five. You can find more episodes like this one, including how the winter storm affected supply chains for essential products for families. Just search Commerce Street on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Or you can listen on the web at kens5.com slash commerce street. I'm Erica Zucco with producer Kristen Dean. Thanks for listening.